Welcome to this uh, seminar on uh, terrorism, ill-defined. The question of mental health came up as a very central part of the trial after the 22nd of July in Norway, where we saw this question of, was it a mental health is issue? Was it a political issue? How to balance this? And this has become a common knowledge that mental health can be a part of the phenomenon of terrorism or violent extremism, as it's often called. It's also often framed as either or, but we've also learned eventually to think that it can be both and, that it can be both political and having something to do with mental health. But how does this affect an already notoriously slippery, difficult, contested concept of terrorism and terrorist attacks and of extremism and violent extremism, radicalization? And what does it do to counter-terrorism and countering violent extremism efforts to include this aspect? How can we make sure to be a bit normative and perhaps provocative that these efforts at countering terrorism will not mess up the health sector and the health system in the way that it has somewhat messed up the political systems in Europe? We need to think carefully about this before just including it as part of a political agenda to counter terrorism. So the definitional issues have concrete consequences for people's lives. It has political consequences for the systems that we build around people, even in welfare states where we uh, are democratic, trying to represent the people in the best possible ways. We've seen how terrorism, of course, used strategically in non-democratic countries to label opposition, to persecute. And again, we can think about the impacts of including mental health as an or mental illness as a terrorism-related issue in those non-Western, non-democratic contexts. Maybe we even need to factor that in when thinking about how we respond here in Norway. Or do we? To discuss these issues, we have a set of amazing speakers and a wonderful audience. And uh, we will start with uh, a presentation by Charlotte Heath Kelly, Professor of Counterterrorism and Public Policy at the University of Warwick. We will then have two uh, shorter presentations by Kristin Barktura Sandvik, professor at the University of Oslo and at PRIO, and by Rita Augusta Knutsen, who's a senior researcher at the Norwegian Institute for International Affairs and also Center for Research on Extremism at the University of Oslo. Before we get there, I'd like to give the word to Kristin, who's the Good morning, everyone, and, and thank you so much for coming. Hi in the back, welcome. Um, I'm very glad to be here, and thank you for this introduction, Christopher. Um, 
So this project, which is called Ripples, uh, literally looks at the security and, and legal ripple effects on the 22nd of July. It, it started out at the Faculty of Law uh, six years ago, uh, when we came to the conclusion that a lot of the survivors uh, from Utøya, but also the government quarters, were attending law school, and, and we had no pedagogic way of, of dealing with the attack. There was also very little research. And so we created a project which uh, includes uh, various departments at the Faculty of Law, PRIO, our British partners, and, and has a very large advisory board with, with preeminent scholars. Um, and, and what we hope to do is, is both to do that research, mapping and analyzing things that have happened, but also contribute to current thinking about how we address this, how we help civil society and the general population deal with deal with the consequences of uh, attacks, but also helping governments and, and the health sector, for example, in addressing this issue. Um, what has happened in Norway after the 22nd of July is that we've had a number of attacks in um, 2019, 2020 uh, in Kongsberg, and in 2022, uh, the Pride attack, and we're still waiting for that, that court case. But it means that at least the post-terror landscape in Norway has gotten much more tangled and, and difficult to comprehend. Um, so it's, it's also my pleasure today to, to learn from the other speakers and, and to engage with you as the audience. Uh, and again, thank you for coming. Thank you, Kristin. And uh, I, I forgot to say, so I'm Christoph Leden, senior researcher here at uh, PRIO, Peace Research Institute Oslo. And uh, we'll now uh, go directly to the uh, talk by Charlotte Heath-Kelly. Uh, Charlotte will talk about multi-agency counterterrorism in Norway and the UK. Uh, Charlotte's uh, leading um, a large European Research Council-funded project on counterterrorism and counter-radicalization projects in Europe. She's also done amazing research on politics of memorials and politics of responses, but also of anticipation of terrorism and terrorist attacks. And um, she's written two books on related subjects and a lot of interesting articles that you should all look up. So please. <laughs> thank you. Um, yeah, before I start, thank you so much to, to Prio. Thank you to Christopher. Thank you to Kristen for um, arranging my, my trip. It's, it's been wonderful to come back again. Um, this is quite a big presentation and I've got 20 minutes, so I am gonna go straight in. The question that I'm gonna ask today is, is it all right for intelligence agencies to access your medical records um, as a basis for working out whether you may be a risk or may not be a risk? Where are the limits now that we've got to the point as advanced liberal democracies with very large preventing extremism programs, where is the limit when we have to say, that's enough, that's too far? Um, so Christopher's kindly done the acknowledgement to the funder for me, so I, I don't need to do that. But um, we, we study uh, eight, eight case studies in Europe. I'm gonna speak about two of them today. Um, I won't be able to get through everything on here because we have to go a little bit faster than normal. There's a concept of vulnerability that is absolutely central to preventing violent extremism programs. And vulnerability 
um, is the most fascinating term I think I've ever encountered. No one truly can pin it down. It does a lot of work. And it's, it's not just in preventing violent extremism, it's across several other policy fields as well. Um, child sexual exploitation, um, troubled families programs in the UK. So this is, this is not just a specific concept. Um, and this concept opens the door for cooperation between policing and the welfare state in, in many programs um, to look at how can we intervene early what can we do with welfare systems to stop someone going down a bad road? So this is your traditional preventing violent extremism sort of frame. Now, in the last few years, there are several programs that have been going further than that frame. Um, I'm, they don't have a collective name yet. I'm going to call them multi-agency counterterrorism. Why do they go further than preventing violent extremism? because preventing violent extremism never directly involved the security services in your life if you hadn't committed a crime. It was very much your local welfare agencies sort of paying attention to you. It never crossed that line where the intelligence agencies directly intervened in your life covertly. That was called counterterrorism. That was not preventing violent extremism. Uh, in the UK, we would call that pursue rather than prevent. These new programs I'm going to tell you about, these blur the two together so that there's no longer a distinction between um, soft prevention and the involvement of hard counterterrorism. So there's also an underlying question here, the academic one, as to why is it always care that we see doing a lot of this work, a lot of this expansion into social services, sort of um, crime prevention, uh, terrorism prevention. It would seem paradoxical that that the care agencies would do this kind of policing and risk work, but it's always the care agencies. So one of the, the questions of the presentation is, why is it always the care sectors where, where this work is, is kind of expanding? Um, and what literature is there on liberalism itself that can help us understand this? So not as much as you'd think, actually. So if you're thinking, oh, should the police collaborate with health to look at your health records? If you instinctively feel that doesn't sound right to me, there's not a, a huge literature on why that might be um, wrong or prohibited. What I have found, I will share with you now, and we have to go through this quite fast as an intro. This is a really important part of history during the 1970s and 80s, where the Soviet Union um, basically used the KGB um, with the psychiatrist services um, to put reformers, protesters in psychiatric detention. And this is a massive human rights abuse to, to do this, to use psychiatry to imprison basically your, your democratic um, protesters. Why is this relevant? Well, before this happened, in the World Psychiatric Association, the American Psychiatric Association, the British one, there was no code of ethics. The code of ethics actually developed through protesting against this practice. So all of the psychiatric associations stood up and said, this is a human rights abuse, we must oppose this. And at the same time, they wrote into their own codes, you must not use psychiatry for political purposes. You must be extremely careful if you're a psychiatrist collaborating with intelligence agencies or the police. Extreme caution. So through this sort of 
Cold War face-off in medicine between the West and the Soviet Union, this is where we codified, you must not use psychiatry to do this. Now, we are now using psychiatry to do this. So, spoiler, this is happening. This is real, it's happening. Um, it's an academic presentation. We love Mitchell Dean. Mitchell Dean also helps us to understand why we probably shouldn't use counterterrorism and psychiatry together, in that he looks at liberalism. It's really helpful if you need to write a paper on this, and looks at why you would have separate sectors doing different things, and that you wouldn't just involve all of the sectors all together in one, you would separate them. So Mitchell Dean's work uh, is amazing. I can, ask, I can answer questions on this if it's helpful. But basically, his work looks at how a commitment to limited government, to liberalism, means that you wouldn't involve the police in healthcare, you wouldn't put surveillance in education, you would keep these things separate because of political liberalism. So this is basically the argument here. Um, you would have all these groups of citizens, I will skip through this pretty fast, but if you look on this side, you've got all these different types of citizens and different institutions who would deal with them. So people who are perfectly okay to manage their own lives, no one manages them. People who have temporary needs for welfare, they can be dealt with by the welfare service. Uh, people who need, um, who are capable of exercising freedom but are not yet trained in the habits or capacity to do so. Care agencies come in here. So this is sort of Dean's typology of why we have different sectors doing different things. So, I'm gonna talk about Norway and the UK. It's really important to realize that these are on different scales. The Norwegian system is very small for this. The UK system is absolutely outrageous. So I've been doing research across Europe and Norway is extremely transparent. So when I was talking to people here, they opened up about uh, operational coordination groups, which are present in Larvik, Sarpsborg, Friedrichstad and Kristiansand. Apologies for my pronunciation. Um, and these are not nationwide, these are just in these four towns. They're not entirely public, but they're not secret either, in that if you ask, they will tell you. And they were set up to deal with an exceptional threat of foreign fighters returning. So this was the mandate for these groups. What are we going to do when these people come home? They might pose a threat to their societies. So these groups were set up to, to manage those people. Um, so you have the head of the health services, you have the local police, um, sometimes PST, um, you have municipality there, and they will share information and sort of monitor any returned foreign fighter, make sure they're not gonna commit an attack. Um, and yeah, PST is either directly involved in some of them, they all work slightly differently. Some have direct PST intelligence presence on the group, others indirectly, where the PST will talk to the local police officer, and the local police officer will then bring that information to the group. Now, the issue here is that, speaking to these groups, very few foreign fighters return to Norway. Very, very few. So what are we going to do? Should we abandon these groups? Um, they didn't abandon these groups. Some of them have expanded quite substantially. So they were set up to deal with an exceptional threat, foreign fighters coming back, use the you know, medical information, the social care information with the police information to monitor them. Um, they didn't come home. So this expands now 
to a much wider group of the population. This expands to anyone who is perceived to pose a threat. This could be a concern about radicalization, or this could be a concern about mental illness possibly leading towards violence. So this has now expanded to a much wider group of the population. Um, how does data protection work here? Well, there's a dance that happens. This is a, a quote from somebody who works in one of these systems. Uh, he can't send the personal details to the other people on the group. He can't use the name, can't use the date of birth. But what he can do is send an invitation to everybody to come to the meeting and then ask the police, who do have the power to share this information, maybe the police will tell you what the person's name is and their you know, identity number. And so the police will then privately correspond with everybody else. The medical records get brought to the table, you know, everything is shared. But this dance happens around data protection law to do this. Data protection does not stop this. It just means there is an additional dance to do around it. Okay, so these OKGs will access and discuss sensitive information about a person's relevant diagnoses, uh, traumatic experiences, living situation. You get a very vivid picture of the subject's life, um, but they will not use the name in the meeting. There, there is the concession to data protection. Um, and it's very much about providing help in their terms. So they describe it as less about uncovering, combating, controlling, or monitoring behavior, but about providing help. That is a significant question for us to talk about in where is the line in modern democracy? Where is the line? Um, because this could also be viewed as covert management with the intelligence agencies involved of someone who's committed no crime in a society without consenting to this. So this is, this is covert management of people who've committed no crimes at the same time as being about help. Um, PST are aware that many of these groups are working beyond confidentiality law at the moment. So they've released this report, Extremism and Mental Disorders, uh, to try and push the debate forward to change the law so that they can do this completely legally rather than having to dance and do this slightly difficult dance around data and privacy. So that's the situation in Norway. It's four municipalities. It's not national. It's not going to be as bad as what I show you now. So the UK, completely different scale to Norway, um, different legal concepts in some ways. That sentence is wrong. Um, I still continue to learn about this. Um, in the UK, it is easier for us to put people in the hospital without their consent, slightly easier than it is in, in Norway. So there's a slight distinction, not the strict distinction that's up there. We also have many, many intelligence and security agencies to complicate this, MI5, MI6, and CT policing. So different context. Now, we have nationalized basically what the OKGs do but also made them far more able to simply put people in the hospital and use medical detention if they're thought to be possibly risky. So remember what I said about the Soviet Union? Um, there's an uncomfortable parallel right there with some of these programs. It's also not in any law or policy. So these police-led panels and MAC, multi-agency center, you will not find them in any piece of legislation. They are non-statutory. They are not part of the prevent program. They are a secret covert version that sits underneath. 
This is a picture of UK counterterrorism. Now, bear with me. All you need to know is that this line here, above this line, is statutory in legislation. Uh, this is what we knew about before a few years ago. Under this line is run by the intelligence agencies, and we did not know about this, and it's not in any policy or any law. It's not been before Parliament. Normal prevent, normal provision of health services, normal PBE up here on this part. What is interesting, and I'm going to talk about now, is what happens down here in police-led panels and multi-agency centre. Basically, if you decide that you don't want to participate in preventing violent extremism and you don't want to mentor, you can refuse consent. Um, you can refuse consent in any country in Europe. I don't want to mentor. I want to believe in conspiracy theories. That's my, that's my right. Leave me alone. Okay. Yeah, that's not what happens. If you refuse consent, you actually move under this line to be covertly managed by the police-led panels. That's in no law, that's been through no parliament, there is no oversight of this program. What they will do is that they will go to this hub called a vulnerability support hub, there are three of them in the UK. These are psychiatrists who sit in counter-terrorism policing and it's really quite, they find it quite difficult for the police to get information from the NHS because the NHS has rules. So the vulnerability support hubs make that relationship easier. They use their medical position, their psychiatry, their, their knowledge of NHS rules, and they obtain the medical records of the people who have been covertly managed, who haven't done anything wrong, and then they pass them back to the counter-terrorism police, who then make a risk plan, and you have not consented to this, any of this information sharing, and they're now going to basically manage and surveil you. So this gets really nasty in that if they think you might pose a risk, but not imminently, they will talk to your counsellor and say, can you tell us what this person's talking about? And that information will, will come back and forth to the counterterrorism police. That's called an orange risk rating. And this, this is really happening, so I will give you some more evidence now than my really complicated picture. So the vulnerability support hubs are where the medical counterterrorism cooperation is really formalized. Um, so prevents enormous and it catches a lot of the wrong people. So the mental health counterterrorism sort of information sharing system uh, is to try and refine who might pose more of a threat than all of these six, 7,000 referrals a year. And uh, their official rationale, if you speak to anyone who works with them, is that they're trying to find mental health care for people that need it. So we basically obtained all their records through freedom of information requests, and it turns out that's not really true. Uh, most of the people who go through these uh, vulnerability support hubs, they already have mental health care. You know, they have diagnoses, they're in treatment. They don't need to be put in touch with services. They are in touch with services. They are receiving care. What the hubs actually do is they decide red, orange, green for the counterterrorism police. Green is okay. You're not going to have any intrusion in your life if you're flagged green. If you have autism, psychosis, schizophrenia, or if you've, um, if you've been a victim of human trafficking, or if you've come out of the armed forces, 
that's going to severely likely move you to orange, just those factors alone, because they're considered very risky. Um, orange would involve the covert monitoring of you through the welfare state, health representatives, education, job representatives. Now, what's this person talking about? They call it setting up tripwires. So if you were suddenly to mention something they don't like, that would be reported to them and they can you know, consider a more severe intervention in your life. So that's surveillance. Um, red is detention in hospital under the Mental Health Act, which can go on for months and months. So here, and there is no judge looking at this. There is no warrant required. This is done purely on the authority of the counter-terrorism police. Um, the limited oversight is that one committee of parliament is aware that this is happening. That's the extent of the oversight. It's not gone through parliament itself. It's not on a statutory footing. Uh, real examples from the, from the examples in there, their own records. A man with extreme right-wing views, uh, he also has schizophrenia. They found this out by obtaining his medical records. Um, he'd previously refused to engage with Prevent. So he's refused to engage with Prevent. He's moved down into the covert space. He has schizophrenia. He's already hitting a lot of these flags. Um, now, unbeknownst to him, a right-wing demonstration is coming to his area in a few days' time. He's not organizing it. It's nothing to do with him. But because of that contextual information and his diagnosis and the fact that he's already part of the police-led panel, they put this together and they decide this is too much risk. And what they decide at that point is a, a decision of red. Now, red means the police come within an hour and take you to the hospital against your will. That is a red decision. Um, and that is seriously uncomfortable. Another red example from their own records is a man with psychosis receiving home treatment. So he has treatment, he's being treated. Um, police information says he has new interests. Nothing to do with this guy, the Westminster Bridge attack then happens. So contextual information, nothing to do with him. Unfortunately, he then gets in a car and he drives the car on a motorway. And that, at that point, the police decide that is too much, this is, this is too risky, and they put these things together, um, interpret this as reconnaissance, and he is detained in hospital, you know, against his will. Their real paperwork looks like this. He, they call him Westminster copycat. He's not, he did nothing, he has nothing to do with this attack, but you can see that, you know, this is how they assess this risk and put the security surveillance information together with the health information. Um, and you'll see the outcome at the bottom, admission within an hour, that means medical detention, authorized by the counter-terrorism police. So, yeah, and here, the formulation of the risk is that the trigger for escalation and the motivation is unclear. This is an unacceptable unknown, meaning we don't know, and we're really worried that we don't know. And that's the point where the decision is made, that's too risky, medical detention. Yeah. So, to start wrapping this up, the scale difference is really important to remember that Norway, it's just, it's four municipalities in Norway, uh, and the intelligence agencies participate in local threat, threat assessment groups. They do not lead them, they just participate. Uh, information flows back and forth, but these are not programs run by PST. 
Um, so they're embedded, they have a role, they don't lead it. In the UK, it's completely different. It's nationwide. It is absolutely owned by the intelligence agencies and the counterterrorism police. Um, they own these systems, they covertly monitor people, uh, they obtain information from education, health, um, to do this. Um, there's no transparency. Um, I do need to say one thing about the ethical complexity of this. So we've talked about why this is so dangerous. Simultaneously, it has meant that we've stopped using really difficult laws for preventative detention. We used to call these control orders in the UK. They were declared illegal by the European Court of Human Rights. So we changed the name. We now call them TPIMS, Terrorism Prevention Investigation Measures. Um, and this is home detention. This is house arrest. Now, we do now only have six people under those extremely repressive home detention laws. It did used to be 52. So if I have anything positive to say, I can say, well, at least it's reducing the numbers of preventative detention. We just, you know, moved these people from control orders and house arrests to surveillance through the welfare states. And then if you trigger a risk flag, then you go to hospital. So it's, it's a different version of something we were doing before. Which one is better? I don't know. But I think a parliament should decide um, rather than us. I think it should go through a parliament. Remember this diagram about the different groups dealt with by the social care, jobs, um, prison system, police? Basically what happens is we have all of these, <laughs> I'm the worst at diagrams, we have all of these arrows where we're merging these categories. This is kind of the theoretical picture of what we've discussed. There's no longer any distinction between group B, group C, group D and group E. Anyone who used to be sort of separated out into these sectors of society can be out now be moved between them sometimes for a long time in between many, many groups. There are people who've been going through this for a long time now, moving between different groups. So this is a picture of what happened to liberal democracy theoretically through these programs. Um, there's a question to be asked about whether this counts as um, liberal authoritarianism. There's a new literature coming out which moves the study of authoritarianism away from elections and says it's not just a matter of, of elections. Regime classifications, you know, that's not too, too useful. Liberal regimes can also engage in illiberal practice and authoritarian behavior sometimes. So does this fit um, with the UK case? We'll stay safely with the UK case. Um, they, these programs have limited accountability. There's no judge involved, so very little oversight. Interfere profoundly with free speech. They expand covert surveillance. And it's very, very difficult to complain when you don't know you're being managed and preemptive claims are being made about you by psychiatrists and policing. You've pretty much got no agency if you, if you enter this domain. Um, yeah, I th I'm worried. So the conclusion is basically, why is it always care that this happens to? Well, liberal democracies don't like to expand their hard policing. They prefer to think of themselves as, you know, governing through freedom, as fostering the skills people need to, to flourish in life. So this is why the care sectors become quite vulnerable to incursions by risk governance, because we want people to be free, 
but we're also a bit worried. So this is, this is why care paradoxically becomes the security apparatus in the very modern sort of 21st century state. Um, in one way, this completes the liberal journey to use care as a soft method of control rather than hard policing. In one way, this is very liberal. It's the completion of that journey. In another way, there's, a, there's an argument that says we've gone beyond liberalism because we've directly involved the intelligence agencies in the covert monitoring of people's lives who've done nothing. And liberalism was supposed to stop that. So it's both a completion and a, uh, a breaking of that pattern, an opposite. So it's very complicated to understand academically. It's fascinating. Um, and the Shawcross Review in the UK is picking up on some of this and how it needs to be rolled back. Um, that's the end of my talk. Fantastic, thank you. Okay, wonderful. And um, the question that we're now partly left with is that, okay, but is there something then in this program? Because what is then the connection between mental illness in of this sort and potential uh, perpetration, perpetrators of terrorist attacks, you know? And um, the next talk will take us a bit closer to that question by looking into this interconnection, uh, into emerging research and also some policy dilemmas that come out of it. So, Rita Augusta Knudsen from Norwegian Institute for International Affairs, please. Okay, thank you, everyone. Um, and thank you, Priyu, for inviting me. And uh, thank you, Charlotte, for a really interesting and rich presentation. There's a lot of issues that um, I would love to discuss more, and perhaps we'll have the chance in the session afterwards. But um, what I will talk about is um, the knowledge basis that these practices seem to emerge from. Um, I think over the past years, there's been a lot of focus on the link between mental health. And I will return to the issue of definitions a bit later uh, and involvement in terrorism. And a lot of practices have emerged resulting from the assumption that mental health is either a risk or a vulnerability factor uh, leading to terrorism involvement. And that, that mental health however it's defined, could even be a predictor for involvement in terrorism. So these practices, some of what Charlotte talked about, also especially what I've looked at in my own research, the practice of including an indicator, very often undefined, of mental health in various risk and vulnerability assessments. These kind of practices seem to be based on the assumption that there is a clear link between mental health and involvement in terrorism. And um, I will just look at um, whether this link really is there, if it's clear, what may be the reason for it not being <laughs> clear. Um, and um, then I will talk briefly about some promising avenues for, for research that is emerging, perhaps. Um, before I do this, I should stress at the outset that individuals with mental health problems are obviously more likely to be the victims of terrorism and other forms of violence than to be the perpetrators. And I think that mental health is more likely to be a cause, a consequence of 
terrorism than a cause. So I think this is important not to lose sight of when we discuss the role of mental health in terrorism. Um, so my own research on mental health and, and terrorism has primarily focused on the two far ends of a possible terrorism lifespan, that is the prevention space and also the sentencing stage of uh, terrorism-related cases. I know that Kristin will talk more about the sentencing stage later, so I will leave that to her. But that's also something that we could uh, return to in the session afterwards. Um, the early prevention or rather prediction space of um, terrorism work is where most of the research has also focused so far. And I should sum up this research, um, perhaps a bit brutally, as saying, um, well, the if you look at the, this research in, uh, in total, you could say that, you could basically say briefly and a bit brutally that there is not established, there is no established um, evidence for including mental health as a predictor for terrorism. So this is the um, conclusion. If you look at this research as a whole, it was um, one recent uh, systematic review that was very quantitatively oriented, which has its problems in, in some ways, but uh, uh, that made the same conclusion based on a very systematic quantitative review of the research that already exists. So in a sense, even on the um, terms of this research itself, the link has not clearly been established. Um, so when this is said, said uh, as I will return to later, I think that knowledge about mental health issues can still be useful when working to prevent terrorism. But this is on an individual basis and not in terms of general practices or general risk assessment tools that is meant to be based on knowledge about whole populations and categories. I think that the lack of, an, of evidence establishing an authoritative link between mental health and terrorism has sometimes been sought addressed by researchers, but also by practitioners, um, by looking for more data, more numbers, seeking more ways of categorizing and measuring different, the prevalence of different diagnoses within uh, different kinds of terrorism. Um, and I think that a lot of the um, uncertainty in this field has been sought explained by the lack of data. And clearly on the issue of terrorism, there is a lot of problems with, with the data. First, terrorism is extremely rare. There are very few cases. Um, second, some of the data is classified um, or confidential for various reasons. But I think the, the focus on more data misses two fundamental issues. And that is uh, that they, it, both mental health and terrorism are very um, disputed and unclear categories that needs to be disaggregated. So you cannot talk about mental health in general terms. Mental health as a category, it includes everything from mild sleeping problems and mood disorders to severe personality disorders, psychosis, depression. Um, it can include diagnosable illnesses. It can include other kinds of 
personalities. Um, so this category needs to be disaggregated and all the conditions that I mentioned, it's quite clear you don't need to be a psychiatrist to see that these different kinds of conditions can play a very different role in an individual's trajectory towards possible involvement in terrorism. So I think that this suggests that there is not really a need for more quantitative data on this, or, but it, there is need for more qualitative studies about what is actually meant with mental health, which kind of um, uh, mental health issues may appear in certain way in individual cases rather than in cases of big populations. Um, the second is that terrorism is also a very diverse category of behaviors. Um, and even if you look, if, if you start with a um, legal definition of terrorism in different countries, that could include a wide range of different actions and modes of behavior that does not represent the same uh, type of behavior in terms of risk. For example, in the UK, uh, being convicted for a terrorism-related crime can either involve carrying out a violent, large-scale attack yourself, or it can include um, lending someone something that was later used to plan a terrorist attack. And clearly, these kinds of behaviors would result from a very different risk profile and al could also involve very different mental health statuses of the individuals involved. So I actually think that when seeking to formulate new practices that deal with the relationship between terrorism and mental health, the search for data is doomed in a way, <laughs> because you will never really have clear enough categories that you can compare these, these uh, types of behaviors and these different mental states with each other in a meaningful way. A lot of the literature has also focused on presenting various prevalence rates of diagnosis within this field. But here I think it's a very fundamental question that may perhaps never be answered, and that is um, how were these diag diagnoses set, by whom, at what stage of an individual's involvement in terrorism? It could even be after, it could be before, it could be um, in prison, it could be uh, in childhood, it could be that the diagnosis was set based on self-reporting, on media reporting. All of these uncertainties makes it very difficult to compare even what seems to be a quite straightforward category of medical diagnosis when you talk about involvement in terrorism of individuals with different diagnoses. And then, which has been become the focus of a bit more research uh, recently, is that even if you were to establish the prevalence rates of different mental health issues, you were still missing the relevance of these uh, prevalences. So I think that I will just say two things in, in at the very end. One is that on an individual level, if you uh, are a practitioner working with uh, an individual that may have mental health issues that you either want to rehabilitate from terrorism involvement or you want to prevent, knowledge about mental health uh, can clearly be relevant when you work with an individual on an individual level. And I think that that 
uh, could involve some of the research that has emerged over the last few years, looking at the symptomology of different diagnoses, for example, and see how this symptomology may interact with certain kinds of specific terrorism-related behavior. Knowledge about this could be useful in helping the individuals to get the nece necessary treatment, um, which should not be lost sight of when, when talking in this space. I just want to make a very final point on perhaps um, issue that may perhaps seem uh, very specific, but over the past few years there's been a lot of talk and focus on the um, what uh, people claim is the very high prevalence of individuals with autism spectrum disorder in the terrorism-related space, and I think that one needs to be very careful when uh, taking this as fact. Um, there is evidence to suggest that individuals with autism spectrum disorders are disproportionately referred to, for example, prevent in the UK. But people are usually referred to prevent for saying something odd, perhaps, to having a very particular interest. And here I think you venture into the domain of what could be the symptomology of autism spectrum disorder. There is also um, reason to believe that when individuals with these disorders are sentenced for terrorism-related crimes, that these are typically non-violent, and also that there could be uh, types of behaviors and crimes that would not be criminal if they were not terrorism-related. For example, gathering information about certain things that is terrorism-related or spreading this information around. So I think that there's a lot of talk and eagerness to act on the what people assume to be knowledge about the link between autism spectrum disorder and terrorism involvement, but I think there is reason for massive caution before acting on, on this. Um, I would be happy to say more about any of this later in the discussion, but uh, I will stop there. Excellent. Thank you so much. Uh, and now we'll have Kristin Bergtura Sandvik from uh, University of Oslo and PRIO to take us into uh, questions of legal accountability relating to some recent events in Norway. So great. So, so thank you. Um, so I uh, come into this as somebody doing research on the relationship between law and society. Um, and, and what we social legal uh, scholars do is that we look at the legal mobilization leading into court cases and trials, how various parties mobilize interests, how they perceive the legal wiggle room, what kind of legal assistance they can get. Then we sit through court cases and then we analyze verdicts and judgments and appeals. Um, what I'm going to do now is to share some reflections with you about what happens after the fact of mass violence, when there is time for the society to move on, uh, to have accountability and to try to heal. Um, and obviously trials and sentencing also represent a very important form of public communication. And my reflection with you is a preliminary one, but, but it's whether what we've seen in Norway over the past 12 years means that what used to be the purposes of those kind of trials is now fragmenting and, and how we can sort of think about this. So I would say that we can talk about this as having four purposes you know, after mass violence. So it's justice for victims and the bereaved. It's important that 
perpetrators are brought to trial, that they're not killed on the street or die mysteriously in their cell, but that they actually have to face a judge and, and being equipped with a lawyer. Then, of course, it, it's, uh, it, and, and for the victims and the bereaved to see this, this is important. Then it's, as I said, accountability for perpetrators, but also for the state. You know, what did the state do or not do to prevent this attack and to stop this attack? Then there is something quite difficult, and that's catharsis for the public and sense-making. The public needs to be presented with some sort of timeline, some sort of chronology, some sort of understanding of what happened here, what happened there, and what was the result. And, and for those of you familiar with the American context, with conspiracy theories, you know, it's been a problem over the last two decades that there are forces claiming that the attack never happened. It was just a hoax. So, so the court also helps uh, us present a narrative, a public narrative, a shared narrative that this, this event happened, these children got killed, this person did it, this was the end result. Uh, and then there's the dish of security, right? So, so for the population that, you know, this, the population that was attacked can now feel safe, that this perpetrator, and, and it's usually he, will, will now be in jail for the rest of his days. He's gone, he's no longer gonna be able to hurt you. So as I said, this, this rationale might be fragmenting, and, and this, is, th this is just to share with you some reflections on how we as legal academics can contribute to public debate and, and what Charlotte described as this conversation about democracy. Um, so as you're familiar with, the 22nd of July, 2011, uh, Breivik uh, bombed the government quarters up here um, and, and then went out to Utøya where he massacred a large number of, of children and youth. Um, and, and, and what marks out this specific event, I think, is, is the very carefully planned, gruesome violence against children. So it wasn't a bomb, but he faced every single child and shot that child in the back of the head or in front. And, and, and I think, you know, speaking and, and working with his parents, how, how they will talk about the fact that they're not able to discuss how their child was killed, but also the relief of my child was killed with a shot to the back of her head. So I know she wasn't that afraid. You know, she was just killed. And it's a very gruesome attack. Uh, what happened after the, 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 you know, the perpetrator gave himself up, and I, I'm going to use Norwegian uh, newspaper clippings. I apologize both for the language and, and the commercials around us. Uh, it's been just cut out from online. Uh, we had a psychiatric evaluation saying he was not fit to stand trial. He was insane. This was very difficult for the Norwegian public, but also the state to accept. So there was a new evaluation which found him fit to stand trial, which was in accordance with his own wishes. Uh, as, as I will get back to later, this remains a very difficult challenge for the Norwegian rule of law, for the, court, for, for the legal system, but also I think it, it's some sort of an unresolved issue. Um, in 2012, we had this court case. I, I think it, it's generally seen as having worked quite well, a lot of victim participation. Um, he was given ample space to sort of do his thing. Uh, but, but it was generally perceived that it was dignified, it was worthy, there was a just outcome, he had a very good lawyers, and, and the judges were very convincing. Um, however, we only went a couple of, of months after this before he started filing administrative complaints about his prison conditions. 
it should be noted that this individual has served under the harshest condition for, since the Second World War of any individual. He's literally been in, in isolation since 2011. And, and, and Norwegian prisons are based on principles of humanity and, and sort of reintegration. Uh, this individual is serving under very different conditions. But he eventually sued the government for torture. Uh, and so the newspapers were full, full of, of, of you know, how he was complaining about cold coffee and didn't like his food and, and didn't like the dinners and whatever. Um, but the district court in Oslo did agree with him that his, his, his prison conditions were in violation of the Norwegian human rights obligation. He lost in the appeals court. Um, then we come to 2019, wh where there was a mosque attack. As you might know, Monsaus killed his, his sister who was adopted from China, went to the mosque, uh, fired shots, and were overpowered by senior citizens. I think you remember these fantastic images. Um, but very traumatic for, for the mosque, obviously, and also very traumatic for the population. Again, uh, questions about sanity and, and whether this perpetrator who saw Breivik as his ideological father was fit to stand trial. Uh, and it was deemed that he was fit to stand trial, but also clearly an individual with very, <sighs> very complicated mental health issues. Then we get to October uh, 2021. We're a Danish citizen with a severe history of, of, of um, mental health issues and also convert to Islam. Go, goes out with a crossbow in the city of Kongsberg. This is, I went up the day after. Uh, this is a neighborhood, you know, Norwegians sleep with their door open. So, so this man was, was first sort of stopped by the police, but escaped and went in to, you know, kill five people, but, but also injure a high number of people in this city that was completely um, unprepared for the attack. This has really not been talked about as terrorism. Uh, it's been talked about as, um, uh, as, as somebody who was very ill, he was, was deemed not sane, uh, legally sane. And, and, and evaluation reports have, have shown that he was really not treated appropriately by the healthcare system. He was sort of abandoned, uh, falling into this sort of between two chairs. Um, The prosecutor said he hoped that the, the, the final verdict, where he was, you know, seen forced to do, in being turned in, in psychiatric healthcare, would help the population to heal and move on. Um, but but essentially, this report about how he was abandoned by the health system came actually a couple of weeks ago. It relieves some open questions about, you know, what responsibility mean for the population. Then we're back to Breivik, parole hearings in 2022, where he's, he's, he's eligible to ask for parole. Uh, what was complicated about this trial was that for the survivors, the parents, they had just lived through this trial in 2016 and 17, and here he was again. Um, he uh, spent a lot of time giving an extremely rambling message about China, the Russians, his own dealings with uh, with you know high powers and how you know just give him the opportunity to negotiate everything and things would be fine, and and increasingly came across as an individual that was not well. Uh, obviously, his request for parole has been rejected. He's he's back into prison, and and it it's almost sort of 
in a way, you know, the fact that he keeps using the law and the law keeps be, uh, behaving appropriately and rejecting his claims, in a way does reinforce this view that the rule of law is very strong. We can contain him. On the other hand, this lingering suspicion that this man should probably not be in prison remains difficult and it sort of is boiling to the surface, at least in, in sort of Norwegian legal academia. Uh, uh, he has also said that uh, this year he will again sue the state for torture uh, to contest his, his prison conditions. He's, he's now moved jail because he's, he's, all, he's a very difficult prisoner. He remains convinced about his, his ideology. It's a shifting ideology, right? So he keeps describing himself as different things. But it's also very challenging for the prison to have an inmate that perhaps should have been in psychiatric care. Uh, then we get to June 2022, where there is a pride attack. Um, someone shoots, uh, this is the day, bef the day before pride, uh, kills off two people sitting there and having beer in a bar next door to a gay bar, London. Um, is probably a very bad shooter, has a very old weapon, and is also s over overpowered by civilians. So this is also something we've seen the last year. Civilians go in and they save their own life or they try to save their own life by overpowering the perpetrator. Um, this is going to be a very, very difficult court case. So this attack is an attack against the LGBTI population in Norway. Pride was cancelled twice by the police in the days after because they thought it was too dangerous that, that other people were still at large. It turned out that the individual in question has a history of, of mental illness, of, of substance abuse, and that behind him are well-known Norwegian Islamists that still have not been delivered from Pakistan. An Islamist who's previously been convicted of shooting at the synagogue. Um, here you have an issue of this forthcoming trial serving to potentially mobilize radical forces who would like to be associated with an ideology which is, you know, against gay rights, for example. And, and you know, I talked about how trials are supposed to provide security for the affected population. I think we have a radical challenge of how we talk about this trial, how we communicate what's going on, and, and how we make sense of the workings of the law when this trial is coming up. Uh, because if we are very unlucky, it will further serve to radicalize people looking for some kind of cause. So that's where uh, things are at, but, but things have become, uh, I'd say, radically more complicated in terms of what we think the law can do and, and how we think we can talk to and with the general public about legal justice after terror. Thank you. Okay, and now I'd like to invite uh, the speakers to the panel and we'll open for questions uh, from the audience and the discussion amongst the panelists. So please. I have a question. Okay, you have a question. So while, uh, while I then uh, see uh, if there are questions also from the audience, please go ahead. I just uh, have a question uh, with regard to your presentation. I think it's such an interesting topic and it was so, uh, uh, yeah, really like important cases that you're discussing. And I just wonder why you think the issue of exemptions to criminal responsibility is so uh, thorny when it comes to mental health. 
because you have exemptions to criminal responsibility, um, I guess, for two main reasons. This is partly something that I'm working on myself at the moment. One is age, where there's not much controversy, at least in Norway. There you have, you don't punish children as strictly as you punish adults. But with regard to mental health, there seems somehow to be much more reluctance to accept that uh, if someone is mental, severely mentally ill, that they uh, um, that is is not uh, reasonable to punish them on par with someone who is uh, mentally well. And I just wonder if you have made any reflections around that. Obviously, there's this history of. Norwegian law on criminal responsibility, was, which have gone through a lot of changes after especially Breivik and, and everything and the specifics around this is also super fascinating and Norway has a quite different legal system than other countries, etc. But I just wanted this like more overarching point of like why mental health seems to be like a get out of jail free card in the in debate somehow. I think this has to do with, with framing in a way. So. Uh, I mean, talking about, you know, what is crime, what is terror, I, I think it, it's, I, I will not describe what happened in 2012 as an original sin, but it remains an unresolved issue um, where somebody is actually deemed sane when they probably shouldn't be or might, should maybe not be, and, and just the difficulties we have in discussing this publicly. Uh, so, so I think that mental health framing is, is one thing. Uh, I think it becomes very complicated when someone is clearly maybe not fit to stand trial, but the people behind are fit to stand trial. So things are getting complicated. Uh, there's also, when you link up mental health with, with religious identity or not. So, so the Kongsberg trials. The first sort of news items said that this was a convert, then it's a white Danish man who's obviously very ill, and then the Muslim narrative disappears. Um, so it, it's the framing, right? And then we're back to this question of extremist right-wing violence or Islamist violence. So I think these set of different types of framings overlap and, and are now, and, and given that all of these attacks are sort of ideologically interrelated as well. Uh, as you know, Breivik has had, you know, globally a big influence, but also on the Norwegian attacks. So it, it's that difficulty. Uh, legally, it's not specifically complicated uh, and, and probably not from a health perspective either. But in terms of how we make sense of this and how we communicate this, for the population, it's not specifically very easy. So when I, I was going to access the Kongsberg trial and I said, can I get a designated seat? Because I know from trying to beat Breivik trials, it's difficult. And then I got news back from the court that we're, we're not, oh, we haven't thought about this, we're not designated seats. And then I said, but you know, you're the number of assistance lawyers here. I mean, you have a lot of, of victims. And, and then I got an email back and said, yeah, now we're, we've organized the courtroom, but we didn't think about this. So it, it's, we're not prepared. Uh, but we're also not prepared for how complicated it is. Excellent. Do you have anything on this, Charlotte? Otherwise, otherwise I'll open for questions. Okay, so I have two questions uh, so far. Um, Bruno in the back. And yes. I'll, I'll take three questions uh, together, and then uh, we'll go back to the audience. Please. Yeah, thanks so much. This My name is uh, Bruno Oliveira Martins. I'm a senior researcher here at Brio. This was really fascinating. Uh, Charlotte, I would like to ask you if you could um, say something f uh, more about the Radicalization Awareness Network that was the kind of the logo in your uh, first or second slide, but then of course the presentation was on on something else. But uh, but I I I get the impression that 
the whole concept of radical radicalization awareness it's something that by itself opens up to some of the dynamics that you that you laid out in <coughs> that happened in, in Norway and in the UK but also exists elsewhere and of course this is this has been an uh, an effort and an initiative to try to you know bring new actors across uh, Europe to discuss these things but i wonder if 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 the whole setup of of the whole network is is uh, problematic by default thanks thank you and uh, may please and uh, please introduce yourself Hi, uh, I'm Maisie and I work here at Prio as a research assistant. Um, I also had a question for Charlotte, actually. Um, I was just curious about if you were aware of any relationship between um, people who have been detained or are under house arrest, yeah, based on the kind of expectation that they might commit something rather than any actual uh, crime committed or terror act committed, and if there's um, a relationship between how more likely that might make them to commit an attack. I wonder if kind of being accused or detained for something that you feel is not, kind of doesn't fit you, then it would possibly make you more radical or more likely to commit a violent act or less so. Excellent, thank you. And then I have uh, Mr. Ambassador on the front seat here, uh, please, uh, in the front here. Yes, uh, thank you. Uh, I'm uh, Frank Garnaut. Does it work? Yeah, uh, ambassador of Belgium here in Oslo, but in my previous job, I was uh, director of counterterrorism in the in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in uh, in Belgium. It was the time of the Paris attacks and the Brussels attacks and and so on. So, uh, if I we've done a lot of reflections on this, and I'll express just the personal opinions. But I, I think the basic task of a state is to. Uh, prevent uh, violence and to deal with the consequences of violence. And what we have seen in previous years, especially since the, uh, the, the attacks, the, the massive attacks in 2015 and to 2016, is trying to and, and so on, put categories, uh, terrorism, what is terrorism, not terrorism, and also this issue of mental health and so on. I think this deviates a lot of our attention of what is the basic task of a state, which is preventing violence and dealing with the consequences of violence through policing system and the court system. So I would uh, recommend, and that's also partly how, for instance, our threat assessment system in Belgium works, is that we have a, a 360 degrees awareness of violence and that we look at all the different kinds of violence and how they are triggered, whether it is either through radicalization, it's through mental illness. These are all different kinds of factors that, that you can take into account and have as a consequence a violent behavior. So you need this very open uh, approach and, and, and try to avoid this, this, uh, this categorization too much and uh, looks as much at left extremists, right extremists, uh, Islam extremists. Because I remember in 2015, 2016, Everybody only wanted to talk about Islam extremism. I had great difficulties to talk with my foreign colleagues from other ministries of foreign affairs. They really refused to talk about right extremism. Because they said, that's no terrorism, that's white supremacist uh, violence. And that, and that made an international discussion on white extremist uh, violence very difficult. So this is a domestic issue that's uh, about Islamist terrorism. We can discuss internationally, but not 
the another uh, word right ex right extremism because that's something that we deal at home with ourselves so i i would try i would recommend to to stay away as much as you can from this categorization and really look at this basic ro role of the state to prevent and deal with violence and but it really puts us in the in the situation where that our court system which is based on this system of, of uh, accountability and and legal responsibilities is very difficult because every I think that every violent behavior is in one way abnormal because normal people in normal situations don't commit deadly or very heavy violence so there's always a factor of abnormality so there's always a, a, a diminished form of responsibility but how at the end can the court system deal with that so we have to we really rethink our whole justice system so I, I, I agree with you, it's getting more and more complicated and we need to really uh, a com almost complete rethinking about prevention and also about how to deal repression as well. Thank you. Okay, uh, who, who, who would like to, to start to respond? Charlotte? Yeah, I'll start with um, Bruno's question, thank you. Um, I mean, it's important to remember that Radicalization is not a scientifically validated process. Um, first of all, it would be completely immoral and ethical to put people in a lab, subject them to you know, ideology and test what happens to, to which person and which becomes radicalized and which doesn't. Um, so we can't do that. But at the same time, we need to remember that it's not a scientifically validated process and that you can have all kinds of people with the same conditions, the same social backgrounds, the same exposure to ideology who will not go on to commit an attack or commit any kind of an offense. And that radicalization is uh, it's a metaphor. It's nothing but a metaphor to help us understand something that's really, really complicated. So this is a long way around to answer your question. I, I, I do some work with RAN, I, I attend RAN Expert, sessions um, but I always you know I'm blunt and honest and say what I think and they they open space to do that I, I like them for that but they are part of this broader discourse that that suggests that radicalization is a process that we understand and that we can predict rather than a metaphor so in some ways really indirectly there is a connection but in the same way that there is a connection to every academic that's written a book on this or you know, every state that has a policy on this. So it's very indirect, but it contributes to building that metaphor into a, a process that we, we think we can predict, we think we understand, but we don't. On house detentions, I'm not aware of any research on whether that increases risk or not. Um, but there's very low numbers of people who've been through that, that regime. Um, the problem with that regime is that there's no way out of it. Like once you've detained somebody in their house for several years, what are you going to do? You know, are you going to let them out? You've just detained them without a trial for several years. You've probably provoked them. So it's a very, very blunt instrument, and it, in, it's being phased out. It's still there. We have about six people on the the UK preventive house detention program. Um, but it's being phased out for these more sophisticated programs. Now that's complicated. That is a really complicated question as to, is that better? Um, what are the consequences of having really sophisticated programs that 
that profile without consent and which access your, your medical records and everything about you should you cross the, the line, should you have one of these diagnoses, you know, should you be autistic, you know, you're exposed to a greater likelihood that maybe, maybe they will, you know. So there's really big questions. This is less blunt, for sure, it's a less blunt instrument, but it raises other questions about, is it right? <laughs> um, that's it. Excellent. It was just a short comment about sort of the difficulty in acknowledging right-wing extremism as a systemic phenomena, uh, but but also in making sense of this, right? So, so when we started working on this, we had older colleagues at, at the faculty, people have now passed away, and, and you know, they came up to me and it was like, Hamsun, Hamsun, you know, this great Norwegian author who had very significant Nazi sympathies, and, and then was deemed, you know, unfit, and, and didn't have to, re he was, a I think he had a house arrest, but got off, and then published, you know, a novel that, you know, he was very mentally capable. Uh, but 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 that that was a getting out of jail issue. But 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 you know how we deal with, with sort of the legacy of the war, which is still present here, right? It, it, it's complicated. Uh, but I think there's also the need to, you know, the need to be willing to engage in the European conversation about what sort of issue it is and, and remains as a threat to our societies. Okay, so uh, then we have a question uh, here, please. Thank you, uh, my name is Lynn Channing. I work for the Ministry of Justice and Public Security here in Norway. Uh, and I just wanted to ask, uh, thank you about, thank you all of you for very excellent presentations, very interesting. Um, question to the, all of you is, uh, do you have any uh, policy recommendations that we can take back to the ministry and one specific question for Charlotte um, have you looked into the Danish model the info house model can you say something about how that's placed um, in relation to the two other models thank you any other uh, questions before we then okay so please Nando Knus from the University of Tromsø um, I have a question, it's, it's a little bit away from what we are talking about right now, is um, have you looked or is there any study the other way around? That um, right now if you say that the state has the responsibility on the one hand side to prevent but also to react to it, but the state has also the, well, the responsibility to take care of the health of its citizens. And right now the indicator would be in Germany, there was a huge study on should there be an obligation to wear a bike helmet when you ride a bike? And they, they analyzed this because there were so many accidents and um, then it showed up that the people will refuse to wear a bike helmet and instead would not take the bike anymore. And therefore the health issues rise because heart attacks or those kind of things. And right now my uh, reaction would be will I because we still have this uh, stigmatization, will I go to a doctor and say that I have a depression? And will I be open about this to get into a, like a mental, yeah, to, to a doctor who's taking care of my mental health because I'm simply afraid that I will trigger something which is then putting me into a orange, red or whatever category. So is there uh, some sort of an analysis? What will be the impact on the health situation of the state concerning mental health issues? So, sorry, it's a, a little bit away from this, but it's... it's just Okay, 
Excellent. So, please. Um, yes, there is. It's uh, it's a new, burgeoning kind of field. But in the UK, there is sort of research beginning um, with culturally informed psychological care. So practitioners uh, from the Muslim community who work with the Muslim community, they are now writing books saying, you know, I very frequently encounter people who won't seek care because they are so frightened that they're going to say something that's be misunderstood and that they're going to end up referred to one of these programs. Um, so Tarek Yunus is wonderful scholar on this. His book has just come out. Um, it's a wonderful book and he has several cases. He's also uh, a practitioner as well as an academic. Um, so he talks uh, with anonymized stories about the times that he's seen this and the the risks to people accessing the welfare state because they know that they could be flagged as a risk group when the welfare state is involved with national security and they don't want to be misunderstood. And if you're, you know, if you're racialized or if you're autistic, you, you have a propensity to be read differently and to be misunderstood. Um, so there is some research, it's not much, but it's coming. And, um, and then the policy implications. <laughs> it's, it's always the question I'm no good at. <laughs> so, okay. We have looked into Denmark, not in as much depth as the UK and, and Norway and our other uh, six case studies by this point, simply because there was so much research on the info houses that we decided not to pick Denmark as the, as the Scandinavian example. We picked Norway and Finland instead. Um, I still have to do Finland. I haven't finished yet. <laughs> so still busy. Um, from what I understand of the, the Danish system, and we did speak to, to a practitioner of their intelligence um, services who works on this. He gave us the impression that there is a functional separation between the activities of intelligence and between the activities of the multi-agency welfare team. And there is a functional separation where Yes, the intelligence service can say, we would like you to engage with this person and please check that they have care. So they can do that. They can nod a referral into being, but they don't then receive intelligence the other way. So there's no relationship of surveillance going on through the care. So there's a functional separation and that reassures me um, if that is the case. Uh, this is... We went immediately to Denmark to check after we found the OKGs and after we found the UK system. So if that is correct, then I feel much more comfortable with that. It seems to square the circle. That would also be my policy recommendation that obviously we have to have security services. But if we could functionally separate their duties from the welfare state, that would that would be more comfortable liberally and democratically. And for the UK, I have hundreds of recommendations. Let's not even go there. Some kind of oversight, some kind of parliamentary involvement would be great. Um, that's, that's it. Thank you. Uh, Rita, maybe you could go next and then Kristen will get the final. Um, regarding policy recommendations, I think that was uh, the one that was most relevant to address. Um, I, I agree very much with what Charlotte just said about this um, uh, functional separation uh, because there's in this space with the mental health and terrorism there's a lot of talk on the need, need for smoother information sharing and I think that um, that 
is clearly important to some extent, but with the right controls and the right flows of information. I also think there is um, a risk of missing the need for competency building as well in the respective parts that should share information. Because, for example, just to put it very simply, if uh, a frontline counterterrorism practitioner encounters something that um, is, a, a, is an expression of a mental health issue and is not able to interpret it as such because they don't have the required knowledge about mental health issues, that could very quickly risk escalating to a level it would not need to be escalated if the necessary knowledge was held by that specific person. So I think that um, that doesn't, I mean, in the UK, like one way they have tried to solve this is to uh, insert health professionals together with the counterterrorism police and with this. Uh, but I think that competency building within each frontline practitioners, um, for example, in, in police about mental health issues, I think that that is something that that is really necessary in addition to knowledge about the phenom phenomena and the ever evolving phenomena of, of uh, uh, extremist ideology. And here, I, th I really agree with the ambassador's point as well, that the, there is so much, um, uh, I mean, one, one thing is that it doesn't always make sense to separate these categories. And of course, there's a, this long hi history of right-wing extremism not really being recognized as an uh, international, the international phenomenon that it actually is. But the boundaries between ideologies are, are quite fluid, and especially perhaps in the extreme right-wing space at the moment with uh, QAnon conspiracies and uh, the incel and uh, all different kinds of stuff that is mixing. But, but I think that practitioners also need updated knowledge about this to be able to interpret the expressions of various kinds of ideologies, but also especially with regard to mental health. and. And I think that there has also been a tendency um, in Norway, um, if we're talking Norway in particular, and I'm really interested in what the evaluation committee of the Pride attack is going to say on this, but I think there's been a tendency among Norwegian security authorities, police intelligence, to think that if there is a mental health issue, ah, oh, this is health, this is health thing, and then kind of just leave it at that. And I think that's also a problem. So, um, yeah, I think that this silo thinking is something that also needs to be addressed in part through competency building. Thank you. I'll, I'll just briefly speak on the policy issue. So I, I think wha when the Pride um, attack trial happens, uh, obviously we at this project were able and willing to contribute to the public conversation, but I think it's going to be very important to invest enough time and resources in participation and dialogue with affected communities, uh, that people have a voice, that they feel represented, and that they feel that they're able to participate in, 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 in how the narrative develops. So, so obviously, you know, we can't do narrative control, but we can create the public conversation where a lot of, of stakeholders are able to, to take part. Um, I, I think the, the loss of trust is, is fairly significant. I, I'm glad there's a commission inquiry now happening, uh, but, but to reestablish that trust, uh, but also for two communities to work together and, and, and you know, in Norway we all sort of, we it's, it's small, we need to live together. 
but, but that will not come by itself. This trial will be very difficult, so time and resources. Wonderful. So uh, on that note, I'd like to uh, thank the speakers for wonderful presentations. Uh, thanks to the audience for attending. And um, thanks to the communication department here at Prio for organizing. And uh, you're very welcome to look, in, look up our uh, research projects uh, online. Uh, the Ripples project, it has a nice page at the University of Oslo. Uh, also, we are associated with uh, or affiliated with the Center for Research on Extremism at the University of Oslo. And uh, welcome back to future events. Thank you very much. Thank you.